0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 44, 1 Samuel, chapters 29 and 30. We left chapter 29 of 1 Samuel last week after establishing that the story is being told in a flashback style. And thus it integrates and overlaps with the narrative of chapter 28. Now the flashback concerns the battle camp of the Philistines that is said in chapter 28 to be at Shunem on the edge of the Jezreel Valley and the Israelite battle camp that's situated atop Mount Gilboa that's not far from Shunem. Chapter 29 informs us that the Philistines first assembled at Aphek, that is on the northern edge of Philistine territory, while Israel used a large spring about five miles away from the city of Jezreel as an initial Initial meeting point for the clans and the, and the tribes to gather together for war. Now, once both armies were assembled, then they marched up to their respective battle camps at Shunem and Gilboa. Let's reread this short chapter uh, 29 to kind of refresh our memories on the situation. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 331, 1 Samuel chapter 29. the Philistines, gathered all their army together at Aphek while Israel's army pitched camp by the spring in Yisrael. The leaders of the Philistines were passing by with their hundreds and thousands. David and his men were bringing up the rear with Achish. The chiefs of the Philistines asked, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish answered the chiefs of the Philistines, This is David, who was a servant of Saul, king of Israel. He's been with me now for well over a year. I haven't found anything wrong with him between the time he deserted to me and now. But the chiefs of the Philistines became angry and said to him, Have that man return and go back to the place you set aside for him. Don't let him go into battle with us, because on the battlefield he might become our enemy. What better way could there be for him to get reconciled with his Lord than by cutting off the heads of our men? This is David. They used to dance and sing about him. Saul has killed his thousands, David has tens of thousands. So Achish summoned David and said to him, As Adonai lives, you have been upright. I myself would be more than pleased to have you go on campaign with me because I haven't found anything wrong with you between the day you arrived and now. However, the chiefs don't trust you. Therefore, now go back. Go in peace. So as not to do what appears bad to the chiefs of the Philistines. And David said to Akish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant during the time I've been with you that disqualifies me from going and fighting against the enemies of my lord the king? And Akish answered David, I know that you are good, from my point of view, as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the chiefs of the Philistines have said he's not to go up with us to the battlefield. So get up early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and as soon as you are up, and it gets light, leave. David got up early in the morning, he and his men, to leave and go back to the land of the Philistines, while the Philistines continued on up to Jezreel. Well, the circumstances are that as the armies of the five Philistine kings were arriving at Aphek, David and his men showed up, bringing up the rear as Akish's contingent, part of it at least. Now, four of the Philistine kings, Akish representing the fifth, were surprised and not the least bit happy to find David and his army there. Now, obviously they were fully aware of the alliance that Akish had formed with David and Akish's contentment with David and his men that, that, that allowed their families to, to live in Akish's territory. But common sense told them that to have this Hebrew David and his men participate in a war against their own countrymen, regardless of the political differences with Saul that had forced David into this self-imposed exile, it was too risky to allow it. Now Akish was so firmly convinced of David's dependability, and is equally convinced that David had severed all loyalties with Israel in general, and that was due to his raiding the Judahite settlements in the in the Negev, that he defended David's expectation of involvement in the upcoming battle. And King Akish said that he had been dealing with David for nearly a year and a half and that David had proven to be nothing but trustworthy. Well, verse 4 has four Philistine kings confronting Achish and telling him to send David back to Ziklag because it was highly likely that once the battle started, David would turn on the Philistines as a means of getting back into the good graces of the Israelites. Now, most versions say something to the effect that David would revert to becoming an enemy or an adversary of the Philistines. The Hebrew word that is being translated here as enemy or adversary is a familiar one to us. Shetan, Satan. That's right. The accusation is that David would become a Satan of Philistia. Now, Despite the reality that we tend to use Satan... Is the formal name for the devil. In fact, it's just a common Hebrew word, a common Hebrew term that means adversary. Right? And here we see in this story a good example of what an adversary, a Satan, a Shatan, does in the eyes of the ancients. First and foremost, a Satan is a traitor. Second is that a Satan will fight against his former ally and king. And third is that even though he might feign loyalty, the words are hollow, because a Satan is a liar by nature. These are good things to remember about the attributes of the evil one whom we call Satan. Now the Philistine kings pled with Akish to come to a census And remember that a leopard doesn't so easily change his spots. This is David, they reminded him. This is the guy who is such a fierce warrior and is able to gain the loyalty of his troops to such a degree that the Hebrew women wrote songs about him that made him ten times greater in their eyes than the king of Israel. Akish saw there was no point to arguing the matter any further, so he turns to David and tells him the bad news. Akish was utterly apologetic in all this. He acknowledges how upright and truthful David had been, and he would have been greatly pleased to have David fight side by side with him in battle. But alas, the other Philistine lords would have none of it because they don't trust David. So David would have to take his men and go back to Seclog. Well, in verse 6... King Akish is so emotional about having to tell David of this decision that he even invokes the name of David's Israelite God when he says, As Yehovah lives, you have been upright. This was undoubtedly an act of the greatest courtesy and deference towards David. But you know, in verse 8, perhaps we ought to be surprised to find that David actually tried to change Akish's mind. He says he's astonished, he's confounded because he can't imagine what he has done to deserve this treatment. He asks, what is it about him that Akish finds suspicious that he won't allow David to fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Now, many Jewish and Christian scholars refuse to see David's statement here as anything but deception. In fact, many say that his reference to my Lord the King was intentionally ambiguous. That David could have been referring to Saul. Now, I have to tell you, I see nothing that substantiates that kind of a view. David certainly intended to fight for Akish and against Saul's forces. Now, what David would have done had he come face to face with Saul is open for debate. But for sure, David had no problem killing Saul's soldiers, Hebrew or not. Nothing has been recorded to indicate that David was up to now Plotting to suddenly turn on the Philistines who had befriended him and saved him from Saul. So Achish instructs David to finish out the night at the Philistine camp in Offik but in the morning to get up and then head back to Ziklag, his village. David complied. David was once again saved from himself. God's providence shows up again. It's hard to say how David would have reacted once the battle against his own brethren started. It's also doubtful that all of David's men would have joined in. Certainly, some unknown number of David's troops could not have brought themselves to spill the blood of their extended family members for the sake of the Philistines' ambitions. You know, it was one thing to raid Judean villages for profit and sustenance by taking their animals and, and food and some valuable goods. It was quite another to fight against their hereditary nation on behalf of the enemy. David was in deep. He had indeed made himself a pariah in the eyes of his own tribe, Judah, and as a, in, within his own nation, Israel due to his association with Achish and the plundering of his own people. And at the same time, he was relying on the Philistines to keep him safe from King Saul. Should he fight against the man that he steadfastly acknowledged as God's anointed king? Or should he turn against the king of Gath, Achish, who showed David such grace and hospitality? and trust. It seems like in this situation, no matter which way he chose to proceed, he would have blood on his hands and sin on his head. Of course, this no-win dilemma was as the result of a whole series of less-than-admirable decisions and of David's penchant for lying, deceit, and self-preservation at any cost. But God had great plans for David. And so as only Jehovah can, he invisibly and unexpectedly intervened. And David was, was miraculously relieved of having to choose between fighting Israelites and fighting akish But that doesn't mean that there weren't terrible consequences for his actions. Let's read about those consequences in chapter 30. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 30, page 331 again. Three days later, when David and his men arrived at Ziklog, they found that the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag They had sacked Ziklag and burned it down. They had taken captive the women and everyone there, great and small. They hadn't killed anyone, but had carried them off as they went on their way. So when David and his men arrived at the city, there it was, burned down, with their wives, sons, and daughters taken captive. <coughs> Then David and the people with him cried aloud until they had no more power to cry and David's two wives had been taken captive Ahinoam uh, from Yesrael and Abigail, the widow of Nabal from Carmel. David was in serious trouble. The people were talking about stoning him to death because all the people were in such deep grief each man over his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself and Adonai his God And David said to Aviatar the Kohen, the son of Ahimelech, Please bring the ritual vest here to me. Aviatar brought the vest to David and then David consulted Adonai. And he asked, Should I go in pursuit of these raiders? Will I catch up with them? And Adonai answered him, Go in pursuit because you will overtake them and recover everyone and everything. So David went, he and the 600 men with him. They came to the Vadi Bashor, where those who were uh, to stay behind waited. Then David continued in pursuit with 400 men, while 200, too exhausted to cross Wadi Bashor stayed behind. Now they found an Egyptian in the countryside and brought him to David. They gave him some bread to eat and water to drink, and they gave him a, a lump of dried figs and two bunches of raisins. And after eating, he revived, because he hadn't eaten anything or drunk any water for three days and nights. And David asked him, To whom do you belong? Where are you from? And he answered, I'm an Egyptian boy, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me three days ago because I got sick. We raided the Negev of the Crete, the Negev of Yehuda, the Negev of Caleb, and we burned down C-Clock. And David asked him, Will you lead us to this raiding party? And he said, if you will swear by God to me that you won't kill me or hand me back to my master, I'll lead you to the raiders. He led them down and there they were, spread out all over the ground, eating, drinking, celebrating how much spoil they had taken from the territory of the Philistines and the territory of Judah. David attacked them from dawn until evening the next day. No one of them escaped, except for 400 young men who jumped on camels and got away. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. He also rescued his two wives. They found nothing missing, big or little, not sons, daughters, not plundered goods, or anything else they had taken. David brought it all back. David took all the flocks and herds and drove them ahead of his own livestock, announcing, this is David's spoil. David came to where the 200 men were who had been too exhausted to follow him. Whom they had let stay at the Wadi Bashor. They came out to meet him, and came out to meet David and the people with him. And when David approached them, he greeted them. But some of the men who had gone with David were evil men, scoundrels. And they said, They didn't go with us. We're not going to give them any of the property we recovered. Each man can take his wife and his children and leave. And David said, No, my brothers, don't do this with the goods Adonai has given us. He protected us. He handed the raiding party over to us. Anyhow, no one agrees with you about this. No, the share of someone who stays with the equipment will be the same as the share of someone who goes out and fights. They will share equally. It's been that way from that day on. He established it as a ruling for Israel to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the leaders of Judah, who were his friends, along with a note. Here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of Adonai. And he sent such gifts to those in Betel, to those in Ramot, to those in Yatir, to those in Aruer, to those in Sifmot, to those in Eshtmoah, to those in Rakal, to those in Yerachmeli, to those in the cities of the Cani, to those in Hormah, to those in Korashan, to those in Atach, and to those in Hebron, and to all the places where David and his men had frequently visited. Three days after being dismissed by Achish, David and his men were horrified. When they returned to a burnt-to-the-ground Zeklog, nothing was left. All the women and children were missing. The Amalekites had come while David and his men were marching with Akish They had ransacked the village. Now, no doubt, the Amalekites had been waiting just for such an opportunity for revenge after what David had been doing to them for the past year or so. Verse 2 makes the point of saying that the Amalekites hadn't killed anyone, but rather they just carried them off. Now at first blush, this seems a bit odd, considering that David's methods of attacking the Amalekite people was to plunder them and then kill all the adults, male and female, ostensibly so that Achish couldn't find out anything from them about David's tactics and the amount of loot that was confiscated. Why wouldn't the Amalekites simply slaughter all of David's people as payback? Was it a kindness of sorts to merely kidnap them? Simply put, the Amalekites needed to replenish their tribe since David had killed so many of them. And it was and it continues to be common in tribal societies, for one tribe to steal people from another tribe as a means of building up their own. The payback was that the Amalekites were stealing the women from the very men who had killed the Amalekite women. Now, naturally, David and his men were devastated. Their wives and children were gone, taken away by God's number one earthly enemy, Amalek. Now the sad irony in all of this is that had King Saul or any of the prior Israelite leaders followed Jehovah's instruction to exterminate the Amalekites down to the last one, this never would have occurred. The first mention of the eternal order to destroy Amalek actually came in Moses' day. Amalek was the first to try to destroy Israel and it happened almost immediately after Israel's redemption. They had only just left Egypt. They hadn't even reached Mount Sinai yet when Amalek attacked. Deuteronomy 25, 17-19. Remember what Amalek did to you on the road as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you by the road, he attacked those in the rear, those who were exhausted, straggling behind when you were tired and weary. He didn't fear God. Therefore, when Adonai your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land, Adonai your God is giving to you this land as your inheritance to possess then you are to blot out all memory of Amalek from under heaven don't forget nearly 400 years later in Saul and David's time God had not forgotten even though Israel now had other enemies, enemies that they were more concerned with and thus it decided, had this kind of decided ambivalence towards this particular command 1 Samuel 15.1 Samuel says to Saul Adonai sent me to anoint you king over his people over Israel now listen to what Adonai has to say here is what Adonai Savot says I remember what Amalek did to Israel how they fought against Israel when they were coming up from Egypt now go and attack Amalek Completely destroy everything they have. Don't spare them. Kill all the men and women, children and babies, cows and sheep, camels and donkeys. See, this is the way of men. We believe that as time passes, as society and culture evolves, the older ways automatically become irrelevant thus we're just no longer beholden to them. This is probably why the Bible takes every opportunity to remind us that while we might change, God never does. You know, I'm heart sick, I'm distressed and not just a little bit angry that many Jews and Christians alike have decided that in hindsight it was wrong and barbarian of God to order this enemy, Amalek, annihilated or anyone else for that matter. And that our Savior has thankfully decided that we need to go in another way and just ignore what the Father commanded about that. It is Amalek's descendants who continue today to want to destroy Israel And yet many believe we need to see them as the victims and give them mercy and support in God's name. You see, Amalek lives on in spirit and in the flesh. We've talked about the spirit of Amalek in prior lessons and it's a difficult and controversial subject. Because as believers, we just don't like to face the realities and consequences of it. In a nutshell, the spirit of Amalek is alive and well in all those who oppose Israel and God's people, the Hebrews. Those who are anti-Semitic are Amalek. I'm not speaking about some opposition uh, to some of the Israeli government's political or social policies. I'm not speaking about a rightful disgust at some of the Orthodox's radical and unkind behavior or to the endemic and politically correct Israeli-Jewish persecution of Jewish believers in Yeshua. This isn't about a blanket approval of all things Jewish or of all Jewish individuals or that they're somehow beyond criticism. I'm speaking about a fundamental bent to stand with Israel's enemies against Israel. I'm speaking of a philosophical belief that Israel is entitled to no more land than what the world decides they ought to have. I'm speaking about a denial that the Hebrews and the land of Israel are set apart for God and a belief that the set-apart land no longer belongs only to the set-apart people. You see, the purpose of Armageddon is essentially so that our returning Messiah will finally do what all of Israel's leaders had been charged to do, but didn't, because of their own self-defined sense of justice that was effectively in opposition to God's sense of justice. It is also because those who today stand in sympathy with the Arab and Muslim world against Israel they harbor the spirit of Amalek. And while I'm not advocating the execution of these people in our day I am saying that those who have this attitude against Israel and against the Jewish people stand in direct opposition to God and they've chosen instead to be in harmony with Amalek. I am saying as loudly and as strongly as I know how, unapologetically, if you attend a synagogue or a church where the leadership harbors this value, harbors this attitude and they advocate it, get out. Save yourself. It's a malicious, deadly, and contagious spiritual virus and you need to stay far away from it. This same deadly virus had now attacked the future king of Israel, David and carried off his wife and the wives and children of his followers. David's men were so bitter that many thought David needed to be stoned. I mean, did David deserve some blame for all this? Absolutely he did. It was his lying and deception and trying to play both sides of the fence at the same time that put them all in this situation. While David was allying himself with the enemy and leading his men off in a junket to fight against God's set-apart people, the enemy stealthily came in and stole away their families. But those who have an ear to listen, hear. But David's men couldn't justifiably lay All the fault upon David. They chose to follow. They weren't captives, they weren't slaves. Fortunately, common sense prevailed, and once the men calmed down, they realized that killing David wasn't the answer to the problem. So what would they do? Again, they looked to their leader, David, and David, still maintaining that heart for God, despite all of his imperfections and faults, knew that he needed to look to his leader the God of Israel verse 6 says that David strengthened himself in Jehovah here is a pattern for us to remember and take it to heart when in times of great distress and danger the first thing to do before acting is to bring the matter before the Lord unfortunately often that's usually the second thing we do First we act in our own strength and make things worse and then we seek God to straighten it all out. David called for the high priest Abiatar so that the Urim and Tumim that were stored in the high priest ephod could be used to determine God's will. Abiatar was the offspring of Avimelech, the high priest of Nob. Now I realize that no mention is made of the Urim and Tumim in this passage, but it's self-evident that the two divine stones were the means of communication with God in this instance. see David made this series of inquiries. The first inquiry was the most basic question of all. Should we go after the Amalekites who stole the women and children? Pretty basic. And to this Yehovah answered in the affirmative. The next question was, will we catch up with them? And the answer was that not only would they catch up with them, but they would recover everyone and everything. Now, there's an interesting and I'm sure very intentional contrast here to the result of David seeking God's oracle and that of Saul's attempts to do the same thing just a couple of chapters ago. Here God readily responds to David but he gave only silent condemnation to any of Saul's overtures. And this is because God was with David but he was no longer with Saul. Let me point out too that the editor of 1 Samuel has formulated the words written down as God's response to David but they weren't actually spoken by God. We can know that for a couple of reasons. First of all, the Lord did not speak directly to David as he did with Moses and to a lesser degree to the prophets. Second, the Urim and Tumim stones could only give binary answers, yes or no, right or left, one or the other. The addition of this line of dialogue is merely to make the story more memorable or exciting, but the essence of it is fully accurate. David asked these questions in some form and to them all God answered yes. Okay. Strengthened that the outcome was already determined and that it was going to be a good outcome, David gathered his 600 men and headed south to intercept the, uh, the uh, marauding Amalekites. Well, after traveling about 25 miles, they came to a wadi and they decided to rest for a short time. Now, 200 of David's men were just too exhausted to go any further. Now, we have to remember that within the last several days they had marched from Ziklag up to Afech and then after one night's rest marched back to Ziklag. This was three days' journey each direction. Then they arrived home tired, in need of food, and there was no village, and there was no food. Almost immediately now, they formed up and hurried south at least two long days' journey until they arrived at the Wadi Bashur and the weaker ones just couldn't go on anymore. Mm. Thus David left the 200 at the Wadi and went on with the 400 hardier men. Well, David's band of men followed the likely trail of the Amalekite raiders and stumbled across an Egyptian boy out there in the desert wilderness. And he was sick and he hadn't eaten for three days. And as much as in order to try and get crucial information as to show some kindness and compassion, the boy was given food and water and he revives. And he explains that he indeed was part of the Amalekite raiding party that had been plundering the Negev. He was a slave. So he was forced to be a part of the group against his Will. However, as the Amalekites were fleeing the area, he had come down ill, and so they abandoned him to die out in the desert. He was in a pretty cooperative mood right about now. Now, interestingly, the boy's confession explains that the Amalekites had attacked both Philistine and Israelite villages. In verse 13, where it says that they raided the Negev of the Keriti, the Carithites, you might have in your Bible, see, it's actually referring to either the Philistines or at least their ethnic cousins. We find evidence of that fact. All right, in a couple of other places in the Bible, in Ezekiel 25.16, it says, Therefore, Adonai Elohim says, I will stretch out my hand over the Philistines, uh, eliminate the Kariti, and destroy all the other seacoast peoples. In Zephaniah 2.5, Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Kariti. The word of Adonai is against you, Canaan, the land of the Philistines. I will destroy you, no one will be left. The Hebrew word, interestingly, seems to be referring to Crete, the island of Crete, where it is generally thought that the Philistines originally migrated from. Well, the Amalekites also plundered the area up around Hebron, called the Negev of Cala, and the southern parts of Judah. Remember, Negev means south. They were kind of equal opportunity desert pirates, and they didn't much care whose goods they stole. So what we can understand is that as much as Amalek was the hated enemy of Israel, they were no friend to the Philistines either. Now David asks this unnamed Egyptian if he could lead David's men to the Amalekites, and the boy responds that if David promises not to punish him or give him back to his Amalekite master, he'd be happy to. Well, the boy's true to his word. And verse 16 has David coming upon a group of drunken Amalekites sprawled all over the desert floor and celebrating their profitable foray into the Negev. Well, the angry and hardened army of David had little problem in decimating the unprepared and bleary-eyed Amalekites. No Amalekite had a weapon in his hand and apparently no watch had been set. So what came next was a total surprise. David waited until they succumbed to the wine and fell asleep and he attacked them at dawn. The fighting went on until nearly sunset and the only surviving Amalekites were those who had been tending the camel. That would have been the young boys. We're told that 400 escaped by riding away on those camels. Now, This ought to give us kind of a sense of the size of this war party. This was a large group. Probably well over a thousand. So this must have been quite a scene out there. Well, the victorious David rescued every last woman and child, and all the goods and all the animals that had been stolen from them. I mean, I can't even imagine what a joyous evening of reunion and relief that must have been. And in addition to recovering their own goods, David's men also took all that the Amalekites had taken from other locations. David claimed it as his own, although I'm not so sure that was proper. Back in chapter 15, the instruction to Saul was to attack Amalek and destroy everything right down to the cattle. This was more a standing order. To all Israelite leaders, that it was a one-time instruction meant only for Saul. Considering that David had consulted Jehovah and was given the instruction to go after go after Amalek, you know this smacks of holy war. And the spoils of holy war belong to who? To God, no doubt. Much of what David's men retrieved from the Amalekite camp was classified as recovery of property not spoils of war. The Lord would have had no issue with that. But what David took was indeed spoils of war. And as this happy band begins their trek back north they retrace their route to join back up with the group of 200 men left at the Wadi Bashor, and we read in verse 21 that the men saw David coming coming, and they went out to meet him and that David asked after their peace. The complete Jewish Bible says David greeted them, but it was more than a mere hello, as the Hebrew word sha'al indicates. Sha'al means to inquire it means David was asking about their well-being as like a concerned shepherd. See, I suspect the two groups meeting up again was rather tense and uncomfortable. After all, many of the women and children who were recovered belonged to that group of 200 that had stayed behind. The 400 had risked their lives for the sakes of all while the 200 rested safely at the wadi. I think David sensed this. And I think he thought, this maybe isn't going to go very well. So he tried to smooth things over a little bit. Sure enough, several of those 400 who had rescued the women and children and their belongings felt that that 200 didn't deserve anything that was recovered other than for their families. The Bible describes those men who had this attitude as raw and Belial, evil and worthless. but David's crusader side emerges as he essentially cites the Musketeer creed all for one and one for all in response. he explains that the Lord gave them this victory over the Amalekites so the plunder should be evenly divided among all the members of the congregation those who went and fought and those who due to physical exhaustion stayed behind in my mind this lends even more credence to the possibility that in reality this was a holy war venture God's eyes and that David had no business accepting the Amalekite plunder as his own prize. That said we should notice that what the evil and worthless men were suggesting wasn't so much dividing the goods taken from the Amalekites into 400 shares instead of 600 rather it was that the only recovery that those 200 should get was their families. They shouldn't even get the food and animals and other items that may have actually belonged to them before the Amalites took it. After all, it's made clear that David took charge of all that belonged to the Amalekites. Meeting everything that was above and beyond that band's own recovered possessions. In the end, though, David made sure that each family got whatever was recovered and belonged to them. Well, this incident became infamous, and it even actually became like case law. It set a precedent on how such matters were to be addressed in the future. Actually, the Hebrew says it became a hulk and a mishpat, an ordinance and a judgment. In other words, as the word mishpat implies, this ruling of David's was seen as appropriate justice. And so it became part of the Israelite legal code that had to be followed or there was a penalty. I think we'll stop here and finish up this chapter next week.